I've no problem with there being a dual bar. I've no problem with people having a drink. However, I believe we should have a policy of zero tolerance for any blood alcohol in the chamber. People who may have to go back into the chamber to take part in the debate or to vote should not have anything to drink until the business of the day is over. I believe that. That's Senator and Professor John Crown speaking to us on the programme yesterday. He was um, suggesting that there should be uh, zero tolerance, basically, in relation to blood alcohol and people drinking in the Doyle chamber. Incidentally, we're running a poll on that online today. Go to newstalk.ie and vote. We're asking the question, should TDs or indeed senators be allowed back into the chamber after drinking in the Doyle bar? Just having a look at the results online, pretty overwhelming. Just over 95% of you saying so far, saying anyway, uh, no, they shouldn't be allowed back into the Doyle or Shannon after consuming alcohol. Go to newstalk.ie and vote on that. Uh, It's Friday, so Kevin Cullen joins us as always from the States. Kevin Cullen, of course, of the Boston Globe. Afternoon to you, Kevin. John, how are you? Just on that, uh, I don't know what the what the policy is. If I don't know if you know if there's any are there, are there bars in Congress or indeed in the Massachusetts State House, or do the politicians there have to just go around the corner to the local pub like everybody else? Uh, it's kind of a common. There are no official bars in Congress. Um, there are, you know, I've been in congressmen and senators' places, and they have a refrigerator, and they'll pull out a Heineken for me or something like that. Okay. I mean, I actually have a different take on it. I think if American politicians drank a little more often together, they might not be so hyper-partisan. Okay. They wouldn't take themselves as seriously as they do. And certainly the holy rollers who are the biggest obstructionists in this country, the particularly the Tea Party crowd, they're mm. almost all teetotalers. So uh, you can abuse alcohol. And frankly, I'm hearing that story. I'm shaking my head. I can't believe they're drinking all night and going back into debate. But that's a whole different story. It is. So let's let's uh, let's park that one for the moment and and uh, come to some of the subjects that you've been talking about in your newspaper this week. You've been covering two trials, Kevin. What you called in the Boston Globe a tale of two terrorists. Um, uh, tell us why. why wh- tell us about that and why you're you're referring to this as a tale of well, two terrorists. It's extraordinary because it, it, as as news talk listeners are well aware, if they listen to this segment every week, the trial of Whitey Bulger, the preeminent Irish American gangster of our time, is going on in federal court in Boston. And the other day, um, the uh, accused Boston Marathon bomber, um, Johar Tsenayev, was brought into the same court. So he had, as um, you know, probably the two most infamous criminals in, or accused criminals in Boston history standing there in the court at the same time. It was a rather extraordinary event. And I kind of compared and contrasted that, you know, Years ago in the 70s, we kind of look back fondly now that Whitey Bulger was a terrorist. He terrorized the city, and he terrorized the city with, um, the, with the complicity and the help of the FBI, who were using him as an informant. Now, fast forward to this. We, the, the new era of terrorists since 9-11 are knuckleheads like this kid and his brother, who can become radicalized just over the Internet and cause such mayhem and murder as they did on Patriots Day here when the Boston Marathon was finishing up. So it's extraordinary when you look at it in those contexts there. But it's, it's, you know, it was also, you know, this kid's 19 years old, and Whitey Bulger is 83 years old, and they kind of bookend the uh, last century here in Boston, but, you know, a larger writ about just what, what we consider terrorism in America. It's changed. In that generation, it has changed from gangsters who kept people at bay to guys who learn how to make bombs on the Internet.
Um, Kevin, talking of Jokhart Sarniev, the, the, the Boston bomber, um, he pleaded not guilty to, to all charges. And I'm thinking back to actually when the, the bombs went off and your account of, <clears throat> of talking to people who were actually involved that day or who had been, <clears throat> excuse me, touched by what happened that day or injured indeed that day. And you saw that tragedy at first hand. How did it feel for you then to see this guy in the flesh, as it were, in court? Well, as I said in my column, he looked like a kid. He, he didn't look like a jihadi, that's for sure. And, you know, he looked bored. He yawned during it. Now, I don't know if that was his medication, because he looked pretty banged up. His face still looked a little disfigured. His arm was in a cast. And uh, But I look at him, and I just say, you know, he, 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 I mean, obviously he pled not guilty, but he's already made written confessions to what he did. He actually wrote on the boat where he was taken into custody that he did this because Americans were killing Muslims, so Muslims must kill Americans. And as I kind of, I kind of looked at that and just said, you know, if you believe that that's why he did it, um, <laughs> good luck to you. Because this kid was, he was a stoner. He wasn't a devout Muslim. Uh, you know, he smoked dope. He sold grass. He sold marijuana on the campus. But it's also extraordinary. You think this country gave his family sanctuary. They were Chechens. And they were treated very badly in Russia. They came to America. They lived in the most welcoming city to immigrants in the United States, and that's Cambridge, Mass., which we call the People's Republic of Cambridge because it's so, but in a good way. I mean, Cambridge is very welcoming to people. It's a sanctuary city. And, um, and this kid got scholarships my kids couldn't get. And uh, they spurned it all. They became radicalized by the Internet. And then the big brother went back to um, Dagestan and came back with murder in his mind. So... You look at it and you shake your head. The more disturbing thing is there is about a half dozen or more, I'm, I'm sorry, a dozen or more people who basically believe this guy is uh, being framed. This is these the One people guy, who turned, turned up outside the court? Yeah, yeah. nutbags. And like I said, I mean, that's, this, is, this is the other thing of modern America. If you produce a crowd and a camera, you will produce nuts. And I, I call these people as, they're, they're a variation of the, the, the Westboro Baptist Church people well, who turn up at service. Were you talking to them, Kevin? I did. I talked to several of them. And they were clearly not in our world. They were out there. One guy said that this kid is being framed. It's part of the, the American government's plan to take our rights and particularly to take our guns. And when this guy said that, I looked at him. I said, do you have a gun, sir? And he just walked away from me because if he did have a gun, I was going to have him arrested. Okay. Um, another fascinating story, Kevin, this week, also in Boston. Um, investigators there have made uh, a big breakthrough, I think it's fair to say, in, in one of, mm. what would it be, in America's most famous unsolved killing sprees, maybe? And, and it's all down it, to DNA. Yeah, it, it, the, the Boston Strangler case, I mean, was the subject of many books and movies, the, the famous movie with Tony Curtis in it. And it's funny, I, Albert DeSalvo grew up, the, the, the accused never proved uh, Boston Strangler, grew up one street away from me. When I was a little kid, I could sit on my porch at night. Sometimes we slept out there, me and my brother, and we were spooked because you could look through the backyards of these other houses and you could see the apartment building where Albert DeSalvo grew up in Malden, where I grew up. And um, everybody in Boston, just as everybody knew about Whitey Bulger by osmosis. You knew about Albert DeSalvo by osmosis because if you lived here, you believed he was the um, Boston Strangler. But in one particular case, his last case, which was particularly gruesome, a 19-year-old girl named Mary Sullivan. Mm. You, did you know the family here? I'm very friendly with her nephew, Casey Sherman. Okay. He's a good friend of mine. And Casey, we actually do book appearances together. He, he's done several books on gangsters. And he actually wrote a book about his aunt. 
and about how he did not believe that Albert de Salva was the killer of his aunt. And there are many people that don't believe that Albert de Salva was the, uh, even though he made a confession, the confession was ruled inadmissible. And so he went to prison for something else, and he was murdered in prison when he was 42 years old. But Casey doesn't, but Casey has come around after the police. I mean, this comes down to a, a little lab tech named Donnie Hayes, who I know, and he's quite a character. And he stayed with this thing for 20-odd years and wouldn't give up on it. And as the, as the science developed, he kept going back to you know, the, the homicide detectives who run the cold case squad here. First, it was Timmy Murray. And Timmy encouraged him in the mid-'90s, stay on it, Donnie, stay on it. And then Billy Dugan took over for Timmy. And Billy said, you know, don't give up on it. We're with you all the way. And finally, they get the breakthrough because the DeSalvo family was not cooperative. So detectives followed. They needed a DNA sample. And, they, you know, instead of exhuming the body, which is what they're going to do today, they actually followed his nephews around. And we saw one of their nephews at a construction site discard a, a water bottle. They grabbed it, the detectives, the homicide cops. And then they brought it back to Donnie Hayes. And he sent it out to an independent lab. Then he did his own analysis, and it came back. The DNA was, they believe that it, there's a 99.9% chance that the killer of Mary Sullivan was Albert DeSalvo. Okay, and, we, and, and we'll get a better indication, obviously, when the, when the body is, um, is exhumed. Yeah, they're and, digging and it up tests. today, and they'll yeah. probably have some results sometime next week. Okay, well then, let's talk about it when we're talking again next week. We've run out of time, but thank you indeed, Kevin. Hey,